Um, all right, well, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here and to have the opportunity to chat about some of the ideas that we've been excited about in my group uh, over in the physics department at MIT. Uh, and hopefully th this talk will be less philosophically based than the Monday talk, all right? So we can discuss data. Um, all right, so yeah, really what I want to do is today uh, talk about some experiments that we've been doing exploring uh, the dynamics of cooperatively growing populations. And uh, there are kind of a couple of different angles to this. So uh, first, I'm going to tell you about some experiments that we've gotten excited about recently, in exploring some uh, universal or generic early warning indicators of uh, transitions in populations. Right? In particular, is there any way that we can tell whether a population uh, is close to collapse? Right? This is perhaps not the uh, core interest of the group, but it's, I think, uh, some related ideas. And I think it's also, um, uh, at least I think it's quite pretty, so I'll tell you about them. Uh, but then maybe most of the time today, we'll talk about experiments that we've been doing exploring uh, the conditions required for the evolution of cooperation within a population. All right, All right so uh, sudden transitions. The, uh, perhaps the most famous example of the collapse of a population is that which occurred in the cod fishery off of uh, the eastern seaboard of Canada. So what's plotted here is on the y-axis the number of fish that are caught each year. It's not quite what you would like the y-axis to be, but it's the data that we have. Right? So the number of fish that are caught over time, and you might not be able to read this, but this is 1850 going up to the year 2000. So this is quite a long time span here. And indeed, uh, this fishery uh, was actually being exploited for 100, 200 years before this as well. So you can see that for a long, long time period, uh, this fishery uh, was supplying the source of livelihood for tens of thousands of fishermen and their families. However, in the 60s and 70s, improved fishing technology led to a dramatic increase in the number of fish that were caught. And indeed, uh, that increase in fishing led in the early 90s to a collapse of this fishery, which only now are there kind of signs of recovery, despite the fact that we were not fishing in this region for 20 years. Right? So these transitions can be sudden, perhaps very bad, and may also be difficult to reverse. Right, so first you might want to ask, well, why is it that such things can happen? And the basic answer is that in many cases, individuals benefit from the presence of other individuals in the population. Right? So this is cooperative dynamics of various sorts. So this happens certainly in fish populations. For example, the schooling of fish helps to avoid predators. But it's really quite a generic phenomenon, uh, both in animal populations and what we'll see in microbial populations as well. Right? So this, you can see there's herding behavior in zebras, also group hunting in wolves. Now, when you have these sorts of cooperative dynamics between individuals, you can get these sudden transitions. And I'll tell you uh, kind of why, um, how that works. The way, it's based, the way it's thought about is in the context of these bifurcation diagrams. So what's, uh, what's being plotted is the population size here on the y-axis as a function of the environmental conditions on the x-axis with deterioration on your right. Okay. So what can happen is as the environment deteriorates, there's a modest decrease in the size of the population, but nothing that you would say is especially dramatic. However, at some critical environmental condition, you can get a collapse of that population, leading here could be local extinction or some other undesirable state. Okay. So this is a sudden transition that's difficult to reverse because in this region here, there's bi-stability. Right? That gives you hysteresis. You can improve the environmental conditions, but you have to come all the way over here to the left before you get recovery of the population. So what happened is that there's a fold or saddle node bifurcation here where the stable states here, in, denoted in a solid line, are separated by some unstable state here as a dashed line. So that unstable state tells you, at this environmental condition, depending on the initial or starting population size, which of the two stable states the population will go to. All right, so these sorts of fold bifurcation diagrams 
are what are thought to lead to sudden transitions in a wide variety of systems. So populations, complex ecosystems, but people also study these dynamics maybe in climate regime shifts or financial stock market collapses or crashes. Right? So it's sort of a generic mechanism that leads to these sudden transitions. Right? And so you can imagine that it would be great if there were some sort of um, universal early warning indicators of an impending collapse like this. What you'd really like to know is if, um, if you're close to this point uh, here, you know, so that in, in principle you could intervene to save that population. Right? The problem is that absent really detailed, detailed knowledge of the dynamics of the system, you don't know that the collapse occurs here. It could be the case that it comes over here before getting a collapse. Or it could be that there's no collapse at all and it just smoothly goes to zero. Could one also ask for indicators of the uh, impending Resuscitation? Yes, that's right. So this is, this is a fold bifurcation here, but it's also a fold bifurcation here. And indeed, uh, you expect the same early warning indicators in both of those cases. Right? So in this could, be, uh, this could be a collapse of a population that you might like, or it could be a signature of a successful medical treatment. And I, you know, so depending upon the population you're studying, or the, you know, then the transition could be good or bad. And the same thing goes for this uh, transition over here. And indeed, the indicators I'll be telling you about are, um, should apply to both transitions. All right, so, uh, all right, so why is it that you might expect to get some universal early warning indicators? <laughs> and the basic answer is that uh, you expect there should be a change in the fluctuations of the population as a result of uh, some change in the stability landscape. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this bifurcation diagram, uh, and we're going to take two slices, a green slice that's far from the tipping point and the red slice that's quite close to it. Right? And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at the effective potential around this stable, uh, this stable state. Right? So in particular, the green state, we're kind of rotating things. So now the population size is on the x-axis, and it's the effective potential that's on the y-axis. Okay? What you can see is that around this stable state in green, uh, that's a very nice, uh, nice stable state. Right? It's a very steep potential well. So any perturbation will quickly go away. However, if you look at the effective potential around this red state, what you see is that things look very different. Because now that potential that's holding the, state in the, uh, holding the population in the stable state is really rather broad. And this is telling you that perturbations away from the equilibrium will die away only slowly. And this means in particular that even in the absence of well-defined perturbations, just the natural fluctuations of the system will maybe kind of build up on each other. And so you should get fluctuations that are then larger. Okay. What do you mean by potential? Right, so the, here what we mean by potential is uh, how the population will change, the deterministic, say, component of the population change over time. How do we know there even is a potential in a high-dimensional dynamic right. system? Yeah, yeah. so uh, this, um, so you, you don't know, so that's the first one. Right, so in a, in a one-dimensional system, you can kinda, you're kind of guaranteed that, that it's a simple potential. In a higher-dimensional system, you're not. Uh, and then, in general, you have to introduce some kind of vector potential, like a magnetic field kind of thing. But actually, this, this statement here, and the mathematical statement is actually that at this point F2, it's a bifurcation where the dominant eigenvalue goes to 0. And that statement is actually more generally true than just uh, the, the simple picture here would suggest. So indeed, so the 0 eigenvalue bifurcation is actually a more general mathematical statement about these dynamical systems as compared to something that just comes from, uh, from this uh, stability landscape. There are plenty of dynamical systems where you can't find a potential. People searched forever. Yeah, no, and, and, that, and that, that's, that's, my, that's what I'm saying, is that this, the, this phenomenon of critical slowing down where the eigenvalue goes to zero happens even when you cannot describe it as a, with, as a potential. Right, so that's, that's what, this, this is a nice way to get into it. Value of what operator? Right, so around this fixed point, there's going to be some, there are going to be 
some number of eigenvalues, some number of eigenvectors in some high dimensional space. All right. Some of them could be complex. And some of them. Of the time evolution yeah. operator? What, what, what are you taking the eigen? Okay, all right. So, what's the eigenvector? Okay, right. So, so you have, uh, you have, let's say you have a complex ecosystem, for example, with uh, a vector describing the numbers of the different species. Right? And then you can ask about how that vector changes over time. In particular, around this fixed point where there's some stable. Time evolution operator applies yes. to this vector. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And anyway, so there's some number of eigenvalues with some number of eigenvectors. And the statement is that the dominant eigenvalue, i.e., the eigenvalue that's closest to zero, that eigenvector, or sorry, that eigenvalue will go to zero at that bifurcation point F2. I'm assuming there's a, yeah, that's right. So there's some, there's some stable state. And then, uh, yeah. Cool. So that, that's, I guess, right, one point that David is making. And this is just an assumption that you have deterministic system with a fixed point. And, yeah. And uh, but you, you can have fluctuations uh, within that uh, stable state, as sure. you will have with fish, perfectly mm -hmm. normal and happy. And, uh, and besides, it may, have, it may be a stable attractor with right. fish, yes. which you want to distinguish you know, with non-trivial dynamics, which you want to uh, distinguish from a sta stable attractor without fish. But uh, the last, uh, and, uh, and I think quite relevant, is uh, I, even in a simple system, grant you the fixed point, you still have to know what the zero is before you hit it, right? So suppose I have a rather slowly relaxing uh, uh, potential. So uh, how do you convince uh, your congressional committee that time to act is okay. now and not 50 years from right. now in a different? Uh, okay. So I, okay, there, there are a number. Of, okay, so there, there are at least three questions in, in your, your question. So I'll kind of try to go through them. Um, so uh, first of all, there is certainly going to be noise and stochasticity, and indeed. In the experimental system that you're that I'll talk about, that that noise is somehow amplified before the tipping point. And that's what we use as our as our early warning indicator. So that in some ways that noise is, I think the noise is okay. And the stochasticity in the system uh, is it does not necessarily mean that the, that this would not work. No, it's not not so okay because uh, it's okay if it has some well defined you know, Markov process with a well defined correlation time. Sure. So that you know that uh, your slow mode yes. okay, is not a slow mode. I mean, you, there, there are always ways that anything can fail, right? So I mean, I, I agree that that it's that these things are not you're not guaranteed to be able to see these things, right? That, that's one statement. Uh, that's also why I think we need to do experiments to see if we can measure them, which we've done. Uh, the, okay, th there's another question that you asked about, which is um, it could be that you don't have. Um, uh, a stable fixed point, but you actually have some sort of attractor, right? That was David's okay, um, and and indeed, I would say so. This, the, what I'm talking about are the, ca the cases where you have these zero eigenvalue uh, bifurcations, which is all the stand all the all the bifurcations that you have heard of in the sense of well, okay, maybe the theorists, all, right, all the bifurcations that the experimentalists have heard of. I mean, in the sense of the full bifurcation, transcritical, the hop, okay, um, but. Global bifurcations won't necessarily. I mean, then you can't say that this. You you can't make the same statement, right? So, I. So there, there are cases in which you will, would not expect these indicators to show up. But, um, but I would say that for the standard case, the standard things that I think are going to be most relevant for. Well, Hulp bifurcation is standard in many, many models. 
Yeah. There you don't have a zero eigenvalue. If if you if you enter from the real part is zero. But not the oh no, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Um, it, so that still is yeah. Um, so you can have complex eigenvalues and, and yeah. So the real part and that that's fine. That's still a critical slowing down. Can I ask a less technical question? Yeah. Um, so do the fine details of the system mean that it's hard in general to know how close you have to be to the place where it will fall apart before the potential yes. gets visible? <laughs> yes. Okay. So the, what you can generally kind of say is that the eigenvalue should go to zero. So the, these. The fluctuations, for example, the size of the fluctuations, time scale fluctuations, should diverge as you approach this point F2. But theory does not tell you what the uh, prefactor there is. So it could be that you have to be super close before you can measure anything, in which case they're not actually useful. Right? So I'd say that just because something mathematically diverges does not mean that it'll actually be measurable in any real system, because we cannot, become, we can't, we cannot get arbitrarily close to the point F2. Well, even from this red state, it could be that a fluctuation will make you hop over here, and then you'll go extinct. Right, so once again, I think that, that we need to make measurements. Yes? Uh, how much will your picture be affected by the fact that you have a finite population whose number is changing inside? Right. Um, right so there, there are a couple of things. Um, right, so this is really a deterministic description of, of, of the system. Uh, and I, I would say that the, the finite population kind of effects are um, are relevant, but it, it's sort of similar to a lot of other sources of stochasticity. And so the question is just how big are the you know it's, it's a quantitative question, you know how big are those fluctuations relative to other things? Um, right. Okay. So so just to summarize, kind of the the base expectation here or hope is that there are at least these two possible early warning indicators. First. The fluctuations in the population size should get larger. And second, the fluctuations should get slower. Okay. So these are, I think, interesting theoretical predictions, but uh, they don't prove that they can actually be measured in real systems. So that's what we, that's what we set out to do. Particularly, this is work that was done by Lei Dai, uh, a graduate student in the physics department, together with a visiting student uh, from the Netherlands. Uh, they want to know whether these early warning indicators could be measured experimentally. Right, so what they decided to do is to use uh, yeast populations. Right, so these are uh, single-celled organisms, uh, a few microns in size. Uh, they have different advantages. So they're, they're small and simple, with short generation time of a couple hours. Uh, we can really perform quantitative measurements of things like the population size. In addition, and I think it's very important, we have control over the environment. So we have control over that x-axis. We can impose different environmental conditions and then look to see how the fluctuations in the population behave. And then finally, it's really important for uh, the later part of the talk, uh, we can also perform genetic manipulations that allow us to control the strategies that are being followed. And you, you have no genetic sweeps on the timescale of the experiment? Uh, right. So uh, we've done experiments over various timescales. Most of them are over the kind of 50, 70 uh, generation timescale where uh, we think that uh, there's not time for the mutants to uh, sweep. Although we've done some experiments over the timescale of months, and we also see uh, these indicators, and you know, they're supposed to be universal, so it shouldn't. So it shouldn't, hopefully, matter uh, whether that had happened or not. Why do you say supposed to be universal? Well, not what you're trying to demonstrate. Well, no, an experiment doesn't prove that things are universal. It proves that it's possible to measure in some system, right? Uh, so why are they supposed to be universal? Right. So when I okay, so when I say supposed to be universal, uh, because 
Well, things can get more complicated depending upon the uh, exact identity, for example, the mutants. We'll find at the end of the talk, hopefully, that in some cases uh, with the cooperator cheaters, we actually get spirals. Right? So this is the complex eigenvalues where, you know, so depending on what's actually happening, you might have to look at, you might have to measure or analyze things slightly differently. Uh, and I'd say, and, and then in principle, it could, it could be that mutants lead to some one of these uh, it, you know, chaotic dynamics that, that lead to a global bifurcation. So in principle, all sorts of, you can imagine all sorts of funny things happening. I don't think that that's so relevant for experiments, though, or, or for a standard real-world system. All right, so what you need to know about uh, these populations right now is that uh, what we're doing is we're studying yeast growing on the sugar sucrose, which is indeed what Andrew talked about a couple days ago, so that should be familiar. Uh, so the idea is that sucrose is broken down outside of the cell. Right, so they share the breakdown products with the population. And just on a very practical level, what this, how this manifests experimentally is that the yeast divide more rapidly at higher cell density because they can share more of those, um, uh, the breakdown products. Okay? And it's that... It's those positive feedback uh, interactions between individuals in the popula population that lead to the possibility of sudden collapse. All right. uh, but it's a possibility. You know, we're experimentalists. So the question is, does that actually happen? All right. So I'll describe our experiments because they're, they're, they're super simple, and it's valuable to have a sense of what it is we're doing. All right. We grow the cells <coughs> in a well-mixed liquid batch culture. What that means is that we start at the beginning of the day with a small number of cells. We let them divide for about a day as it's being shaken. At the end of the day, we have some larger density cells that make uh, the liquid cloudy. So what we can do is we can measure the cell density just by measuring the optical density of that liquid. Okay. At the end of that day, then we transfer over some small fraction of the cells via a daily dilution step, all right, and we repeat this process for a week or two. Okay. What we're going to be then analyzing and plotting is the population size at the end of each day. And in the experiments, I'll tell you about we've been controlling the environmental condition by varying this daily dilution. So a larger dilution corresponds to a higher effective mortality rate or a more challenging environmental condition. Okay. All right, so the, yeah, so the first thing we want to know is, is it really the case that in some conditions, yeast growth in this sugar sucrose, uh, the outcome is bistable? Right? So, and that's something that we can, we can access uh, rather easily in experiments. What we do is we just start at many different population sizes or densities. And then we just propagate in a constant environmental condition over time. What you can see is that if we start with a large density of cells, those populations reach some stable equilibrium. If we start with a low density of cells, those populations collapse. They go extinct, which is indeed another stable state. And in between those two stable states is an unstable fixed point in here uh, that tells you the minimal population density required for survival in this particular environmental condition. Yeah? So this is... Um Population density during the serial dilution step at the end of the serial at the at the, end, at, the at the end of the day at the end of the day yeah so it grows we measure the density and then we dilute and we just do that we repeat that for a week or two and this is for a particular dilution protocol that that's right this is for a dilution factor in this case of fourteen hundred each day so they're uh, just over ten generations uh, or divisions each day these are real data or is this just sort of a cartoon oh it's real data yeah, real data. Uh, but it's, it's nice when people ask that about real data. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this, this, is, this is what happens in this particular dilution. And yeah. why is there a band of stable uh, states at high population density rather than a, a more precisely defined thing? Is that just experimental noise? Or? Um, the, you're talking about this, the, the variation here? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is um, the width here is, is part of what we're going to be studying. 
So there's, there's some stable state in there, but then there's some variation around that stable state. So in fact, those curves are fluctuating on time, you would expect, uh, over the scale approximating the width of that band of blue line? Um, or is that particular realization going to be approximately horizontal, but there are many yeah. possible horizontal asymptotes? Right, so what, um, right, so what we find is that um, individual populations will fluctuate over this uh, entire band. And when we really analyze things over the next week, we'll say, you know, for, for analyzing the, the fluctuations and so forth. So I had a couple of questions maybe to clarify. Because uh, you motivated this whole thing with endangered species sort of situations, which is small numbers of individuals. But I guess the models are deterministic models. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how you resolve uh, all those lines going extinct, is that a finite cell number effect, or is it some odd dynamics? And then there's the axis there that's uh, cells per microliter. So cultures, I guess, are bigger than microliter. Yeah. Uh, so the numbers are actually much larger. That's right. So the numbers are roughly 100 times larger than this. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll say that in general, so in, in the context of, of, of ecology, uh, this uh, dynamic where you have a minimal population size or density for survival is called the alley effect. And, uh, and that minimal population size density, I think, can vary quite a lot depending upon the organism that you're talking about. Um, I don't think, and, you know, in some cases, you're, it's really that you know, there's really only 30 of the, this particular California condor in this region. You know, so that's a really small number. But um, in the co context of, for example, the fishery, those, I think, were not small numbers when they went, when they collapsed. Right, so I think it's... It, the numbers can, can vary quite a lot. So. But you're not worrying about things like mutation accumulation and this thing called mutational meltdown. Mm, uh, there are yeast cells, obviously. Right, so th these all started from a clonal population. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and I would say that we, we're not, and we're not, we shouldn't be getting any mutational meltdown. We're not, we're not, this is not a small effective population size or whatnot. So I think that those things are not going to be um, relevant in these experiments. And there are haploid strains? Yes. And there was a question in the back. No, I didn't make it. Okay. I have a question, which is maybe a very theoretician question. I don't understand really uh, why you have to do this daily dilution, because that really, in a way, changes the dynamics, right? I mean, you're really changing completely. So I'm, I'm seeing uh, this. This would be the dynamical system of the population, but you're really superimposing a pretty important process on it, right? Yeah, I, I guess I would say that there are many different environments in the world. And uh, well, OK, it's really, this is, like a, this is like somehow the standard way that experiments with microbes are done in the lab. And that, that's, part, that's partly why we do it, just because it's simple to do and so forth. Right? So this is basically what, also what Lenski does. It dilutes by a factor of 100 each day is what he did. Um, I'll also say, though, that I, I, it's not as um, crazy as you might, if you ask, uh, for many annual plants you know, or something, you know, then there, there really is this thing where they maybe each, each year there's the, the numbers grow, grow, then in the winter there's this massive die-off. You know, so I, I, I think that there are a wide range of different life histories in the world, and, and this is as arbitrary as any other one, I would say. Uh, may, so so okay. how sensitive does it depend on the, the dilution factor? Maybe you explain yeah. Well, I, I Presumably, if the dilution factor is uh, yeah, zero, yeah. then... Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm about to show data on, on how, the, how this, yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, do I understand well? If, uh, if I understand that uh, at 10 to the 6, uh, you start from a uh, saturation uh, culture? 
Yeah, yeah so this is, um, this is, yeah, ro roughly, yeah, sat roughly saturated. Okay. Yeah, so, th so these populations are not actually at saturation. I mean, they, in principle, they, they, could, they could get it to be an order of magnitude higher density. Um, point. Oh, what five, is the density actually, of, the, even, of the, the, the saturation? So in these conditions, the saturation is maybe at OD5 or so. And actually, this might even be two orders of magnitude lower, almost, um, well, density. With, with OD5, it's like how many cells per microliter? All right, so this here is 10 to the 5 uh, cells per microliter. And I, I'm, I'm claiming that uh, saturation would be a factor of 20, 50 higher than that. So. Remember, 10 to the 5th per microliter is 10 to the 8th per minute, which is saturation. So let's see. 10 to, okay, so OD5, 10 to, um, I mean, I can go through. I mean, I would say that. I'm telling you, I've been a yeast geneticist for 30 years, 10 to the 8th per mil is saturation. Okay, all right, so 10 to the 8th per mil. Uh, so, so t I mean, I yeah. guess the, the thing I think that Nikolai and maybe I'm confused okay. about. 10 to 5, is okay, yeah. yeah. Is that when you start near 10 to the 6 per microliter, so near 10 to the 9th per mil. Yeah. Gradually over time, over successive dilutions, the density goes up. That's fine. So in the, in the first experiment, the, the number of cells per mil is presumably. Yeah, I think that stays the same in the first dilution when you inoculate so many cells. Stays the same. Well, if you're inoculating 10 to the 6 cells per microliter, yeah. your tube, as you start, is already saturated. Yeah, yeah, no, so, right, so this is, yeah, no, I agree that's saturated. Um, yeah, and so this is the, this is the population size um, at, the, at the end of that day. And in, in a lower dilution factor, you would have an equilibrium that was higher than this. I mean, I'll, I'll show you that data. So everyone gets diluted by a factor of 14. That's right. Perfect. These are numbers before, or when, when are they counted before? They're, they're counted just before dilution. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, uh, last question. So, so uh, in, the, in contrast, if we take the, the red slope at the bottom, yeah. uh, so you, you expect them to have a longer uh, lag time, because uh, we know that if we inoculate uh, at low density, the, 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 the lag is longer. So if you do the instead <coughs> of uh, transferring uh, each day, you transfer two uh, yeah. each two day. You yeah. Them, uh, I mean, we, we've done experiments with various, you know, and I, I guess what I would say is that there are lots of things that are true. Okay. This emergent property of the critical slowing down, you know, is nominally true for regardless of whether all this other stuff is true. You know, so there's a sense in which. This is, you know, we picked some random system, which is yeast, and we're going to find that you can see signatures of this critical slowing down before the collapse. And I, I think our claim is that um, a lot of these microscopic details would, don't matter, in the sense that you would still see critical slowing down before the collapse. Right, but I think that to help people who are trying to think about it, what's happening at the density where you get collapse is the cells are actually growing exponentially at the end of the day. Yeah. But when you put them back in, they slow down not because they need to go through a lag phase, but because they're losing most of the glucose and fructose they produce to the medium, and they're just not being well enough fed. 
So unlike traditional things where there's a lag phase, like lensing experiments, where there's a lag phase, the cells proliferate exponentially, they then slow down because they run out of nucleus. <coughs> but your dilution, your critical dilution, the cells have actually not run out of nucleus. That's right. The they are still trying to go for it. They just haven't proliferated enough to counter the dilution. Right. Yeah. Do you know how the, uh, the concentration of the uh, stable steady state varies as a function of the dilution uh, rate? Uh, how this concentration varies as a function of dilution rate? Yes. Yeah, let's, sh let's, okay. let's go on. Yes. Okay, so well, th we can use this data right, to make a plot where we have population density as a function of dilution factor. This last data was at 1400, right, so we get a stable state, blue. Unstable, red, and again, stable down uh, at zero is extinction. Okay? Now, what you would really like is to make a bifurcation diagram where you repeat that experiment for many different dilution factors and you look to see what happens. Right? And this is something that, in the context of living populations, as far as we have been able to find, just has not been done. People study these, uh, these tipping points in populations, but uh, you know, in lake ecosystems and so forth, where you simply cannot measure the bifurcation diagram. Whereas in the laboratory, it's really trivial to do. Okay? So what we did is we repeated that experiment, many different dilution factors, and what we got is what I think you'll agree is really a beautiful bifurcation diagram describing how yeast grow on the sugar sucrose. Okay? Right? So these populations really are saturated. Okay? And, and indeed, the saturation is then at 2 times 10 to the 8 is what we, what we would claim in our measurements. But, you know. um, and, and, and then this here is, uh, is significantly lower. All right? Before, um, before the collapse point. Right? So the idea is that as the environment in principle deteriorates, the populations will fall off a cliff from finite density. Right? So this is the sudden transition or tipping point that we're referring to. Right? And importantly, we can actually measure the unstable fixed points and how they vary. What you can see is as the environment becomes more challenging, the minimal population size necessary for survival increases, as you might expect. Okay? And the tipping point occurs when that stable and the unstable fixed points collide. And then that's that's the um, that's the bifurcation. Yeah, but really, what's happening is the growth rate as a function of density as an inflection point, right? And uh, now, as you try to intersect your curve and inflection point with a straight line of different slopes, you can get the regime where you have three intersections, right? So, I mean, there's really no extinction. I mean, this is gone. It's uh, another artificial construct. I mean, this is really just the same thing. An artificial construct. Moment you have. I mean, this is this is how all bifurcations arise. So I. I, I, I completely agree. So I, I guess you can you can say that all bifurcations are artificial, or you can say this. I, I don't know, but yeah, and what you're saying is true. But that's that's I think that's how bifurcations arise. Yeah. And the curves here are coming from a theory or a guide to the eye? Or okay, yeah, so this is actually from a simple phenomenological model that we have of yeast growth. It basically just assumes that the yeast divides slowly until some critical density because they, um, it's because it takes them some density in order to break down the sugar, and then they have logistic growth after that. And so that model is sufficient to give um, the, 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 the lines that are drawn. Presumably it's a normal thing, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the standard, yeah, but, um, okay. yeah. You don't have to write a model for it, right? I mean, you know what shape that curve should Oh, OK. No, no, but the normal form is telling you that, you know, what happens right here, uh, I think. the linear theory. You can write down a normal form for um, okay. OK. OK, maybe I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I guess my, my understanding is that, okay. yeah. And, and, and the phenomenological model actually 
you know, uses, say, measured growth rates. And, and you can get actual numbers. You know, so it's, it's a useful guide for, you know, as for experimentalists, right? Usually the, the y-axis is linear. Here it's exponential, right? Does that matter for the model? Um, I said the y. Oh, um, the, right. So uh, this is just how we. I mean, this is just how we're plotting the data. Because usually you plot it on the linear scale, right? And you will see these. Oh, I see. You're talking about for the normal form business. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Oh, right. Um, yeah. So I would say that this is the experimental data, and it's easiest to see on a log scale. And yeah, but yeah. But it could go into the model, I guess. Sure, but you know, from the standpoint, I mean, our the, the model that I described also well, it has the behavior you can see here. And do you have evidence for the upward arrows on the extreme left side that is going back? Um, yes, yeah. So that that actually does. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so now I think that you know we have experimental evidence that uh, that our yeast populations have a fold bifurcation. So then we can uh, start to explore uh, the various theoretical predictions about what should happen in this context. Right, so the first, uh, the first thing that is, uh, is assumed or is thought to be true is that uh, as populations reach a tipping point like this, uh, they should become less resilient to perturbations. What that means is that uh, they should be less able to survive uh, negative perturbation. <coughs> so to try to just see if this is true in our experiments, what we did is uh, for these populations that reached equilibrium, we imposed just a one-day salt shock. Right, so this over one day we uh, forced them to grow in a small amount of salt, and then um, and then asked uh, whether they were able to recover from that over successive days without salt. Right, so the idea is that here you can see no salt, bit of salt, no salt, and then we're going to look to see what happens at different environmental conditions, different dilution factors. So what you can see is that at a dilution factor of 250 in these benign conditions, there's a drop in the population size, rapid recovery. As the environment becomes somewhat more challenging, what you can see is that now the drop in the population size is more dramatic, and it also is taking longer to recover. So we can already start to see signatures of this critical slowing down. There's an increase in the recovery time as the environment is deteriorating. In more challenging environments yet, what you can see is that now, at 750, some of those populations look like they're going to survive, some may not. And at even higher dilution factors, those populations are all going extinct. So we can just experimentally see that there's a decrease in resilience of the populations um, as the environment deteriorates, as you expect from this fold bifurcation. Okay. And this is basically simply because resilience is somehow the distance or the separation between the stable and the unstable branches. Okay. As we get closer to the right, the, this distance shrinks, and that corresponds to uh, a decrease in resilience. Okay. All right, so now what about this question of measuring the fluctuations in the population size? Right. Well, the, what we did then is just first let the populations reach equilibrium and then looked at the fluctuations for the next five days. Okay. And what you can see is that, uh, for example, the coefficient of variation, so the size of the fluctuations divided by the population size, right, there's quite a dramatic increase in the size of the fluctuations. And this is something that we can measure before we reach this tipping point of collapse. Okay. All right, so I think that this is the proper metric for, uh, for noise in this system. but you can also plot just the raw size of the fluctuations, and indeed that even increases. Right, so just the standard deviation of the population size fluctuations is increasing, <laughs> despite the fact that the population size is going down. All right, so we can then say that this increase in the size of the fluctuations could serve as an early warning indicator of an impending population collapse in the face of a deteriorating environment. Okay. 
Yeah. So if you then want to approximate the actual tipping, for tipping point dilution factor, like would you feed this yeah. some curve and say, oh, you know, this Yeah, you could. Yeah, yeah. So, um, it, yeah. So there, there are, I mean, there are simple theoretical for predictions for how these things should diverge. Um, and I would say that our data, in that case, is say consistent with predicted exponents, but it's consistent with many exponents. Uh, yeah. So this is not I mean, the quality of our data is not akin to what you get in second-order phase transitions and so forth. Uh, partly because we cannot get arbitrarily close to the tipping point, um, and because it's a full bifurcation rather than a, you know kind of like a transcritical. Um, but I'd say, in principle, you could try to use this to measure uh, where, the, where the tipping point is. But you know, everything around the tipping point becomes very slow, <laughs> is what we're about to find. So it's actually quite difficult to say exactly where that tipping point is. I mean, there's, there's a plus or minus 100 on the dilution factor, I would say. Yeah, yeah. For those uh, CVs, have you factored out uh, counting error? Yeah, so, so, yeah, so this is... Um, it must get much more severe to write. Counting error. Oh, okay. So our, yeah, so um, the population sizes are still quite large. So it's not, um, I would say that our errors are not like root n type errors, but more linear n errors. Basically, uh, we're measuring the density by uh, optical density. And you know, there's an error of, say, 2% on that. And that's what we found is basically it's, it's a constant fractional error across the range of densities that we're talking about. Um, so when you testify to Congress, you're going to say, <clears throat> if it's a full bifurcation, uh, I can predict when it's going to happen. But something else? Well, no, I, no, when I testify, I would say that um, whether it's a full bifurcation or a transcritical bifurcation, Senator, <laughs> you're still going to get an increase in the size of the fluctuations. And we're measuring an increase in the size. And, and, and so we, we need to issue fewer fishing permits. And then the senator is going to say, ah, well, this is just you know, the size of the fluctuations. Have you measured the time scale of the fluctuations? That's what would convince me. Is that what the senator is going to say? Right? OK. <laughs> <laughs> so, still, uh, so going back to the question, so it's interesting. But the question is, uh, how much of an increase uh, is, uh, yes. is an issue? So alternatively, the question yeah. is for the time scale is, uh, yeah. um, um, so what's the normal time scale? Right? That's right. No, so maybe you want I, I to agree. say that the uh, stable uh, system of the size has relaxation time of That's three right. years, and now we have 30 years. Yeah. Right? So yes, that would be I agree. a little bit of a problem, okay. but it's also a difficult experiment to uh, right. <laughs> okay, so I, I think <laughs> that carry the, out with yeah. 30 years. Right? But uh, so how do you, you need the to calibrate, right? Yes. And unfortunately, you want to predict, uh, if you like, uh, the critical point as opposed to universal uh, okay. yeah, so mean field one half experiment that nobody cares about. Right? So, because it's too universal, right? You, you have to predict something very non-universal and... Uh, yeah, okay, no, but, but now, okay, but now I think you're, you're starting to ask for maybe something that is maybe too much, but yeah, no, but I think that the, the basic point is, is correct, which is that um, we don't, we cannot say that you know, point 0.1 on the CV is 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 the universal number that you is is a danger zone, and this is going to be system specific, right? So what that means is that you have to measure things in happy states, right? So you have to you know say okay, well historically the CV was this, and so it, over time it's around here, and then over the last say so, you know three years the CV has been growing, and that's dangerous, right? So that I think that that's that's what you'd have to do. Yeah. Instead of, instead of the sort shop, did you ever try to acutely uh, change the dilution. Yes, we. Yeah, so we've also done that. We've also done that as a, as a shock. Um, and you could measure recovery time. Oh, but this is still a recovery time. 
But that would give you the relevant recovery time that if fishing, for example, if you increase the amount of fishing by yeah, you know, yeah, I, time, I, okay, I, I, I would just say though that the, the recovery time um, is independent of the, which shock you use. Because what you do is you, you do a short shock, and then the recovery time is after you've put it back in the original environment. Okay. So it didn't matter in principle what that shock was, you should get the same recovery time. And indeed we've done uh, shocks of a, of a dilution shock as well, and we get similar results. So I guess an interesting question relative to all the stuff about practical applications is if you look, for example, at fluctuations in the stock market, can you predict the depression, <laughs> yes. the Great Depression? Um, and yeah, so, I, so it turns out that you're not the first person to think of this. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so, so, so many people have been trying to look at you know, every possible indicator of, of stock. You know, the, I mean, because there are a lot of, well, former physicists in the, you know, studying stocks. Um, and and the, for, I have not myself analyzed stock data, but the people that I've talked to who have tried to use these ideas said that, have told me that the, the real problem is this thing of all the other actors that are acting on the same information and it leads to um, difficulties. But I, I, I can't say I know enough about it to, to say. Um, all right, so coming back to the senator's question about whether we can also measure an increase in the time scale, um, the answer is yes. Uh, so, right, so what I'm showing here is the autocorrelation time. Um, what you can see is that in benign environments, typical fluctuations go away in less than two days. Whereas as we approach the bifurcation, what we see is um, quite a dramatic increase in, in the time scale of those fluctuations to um, roughly a week. Right. So this is telling us that we can see both an increase in the size and the time scale of population fluctuations before we reach the tipping point of collapse. Yeah, no, so this, I th this is actually is, I mean, okay, so the error bars are from bootstrap on, the, on this data set. We, you know, we've done several different runs, and this is not always there. So, um, you know, yeah. Uh, right, so it's, I think it's not real, is the short answer. So it's always good to look at some raw data. Right? So what I'm showing here is uh, the population size deviation on day t, and then on day t plus 1. Okay? What you can see is that here, this is benign condition, here is a challenging condition. Right? The population size fluctuations, first you can see they're relatively small on the left as compared to the right. Right, this is consistent with this thing about the fluctuations increasing in size. Note the that we're using the same scale here. Right? But then you can also look at the correlations from day t and day t plus 1. Because uh, in this dilution factor of 7 and 50, what you see is that the population size fluctuations are small and they're not very correlated. Whereas in a challenging environment, you see that they get larger and they fall more on this diagonal. It's telling you that population size fluctuations take longer to go away at the more challenging environment. This is another way of saying that that correlation time is increasing. All right, so there, there are a number of questions that you might ask, which I don't think you guys have asked any of these ones, so I'll just I'll go over them. Um, you might ask, you know, can they be observed, can these indicators be observed in a, an environment that's continuously deteriorating? Uh, and the answer is yes. Uh, Lay did an experiment where over the course of four weeks, he slowly increased the dilution factor. And what he saw is that he could see an increase in both of these indicators before we reached the tipping point. Right? It's also interesting, I think, to ask about, um, there, in principle, Everything I've been telling you about is if we deteriorate the environment by increasing this dilution factor. But in principle, the environment could be deteriorated in many different ways. And in natural populations, we won't even necessarily know how the environment deteriorated or how it's deteriorating. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, we have, uh, we've also done experiments where we uh, decrease the concentration of sucrose. And we also see an increase in the indicators before the collapse, although maybe not as strong. 
Right? So what we're interested in doing is uh, measuring these indicators in several different deteriorating environments and trying to say something uh, general, well, pseudo-general, about um, how the indicators show up in different environments. Yeah? But just so that I understand what you mean by continuously, it means that you're changing, the rate at which you're changing the dilution factors is long compared to the correlation time scale. Right, so what I mean by continuously here is that um, each day we increase the dilution factor. Right, so, uh, so it's it's still yeah it's not continu it's not truly continuous obviously, um, but it's not a constant you know the environment's not constant I'll say, um, and it's you know and then the question is how fast is it deteriorating relative to this relaxation time, you know and the, you know the fact is you can always deteriorate an environment faster than you can measure any indicator and you know obviously if I just drop the tube on the ground that's it's dead okay so the the question is whether you are uh, crossing this regime where the indicators show up faster or slower than right. So, so, so we and we actually did experiments where we varied the rate of the of the deterioration and to explore this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great. Uh, so, incidentally, uh, there, there's also been suggestions that uh, the skewness or the asymmetry of population size fluctuations should increase uh, before the collapse, um, and 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 we see no evidence of an increase in skewness. I think part of this is just that it's a higher order moment, so it's more difficult to measure. Uh, but also, uh, in our model, there's actually no increase in skewness. So uh, we would submit that uh, skewness is definitely not a good or early warning in indicator in our system, and I think that it's not even expected to be universal in the same way that these other indicators are. Are fluctuations on Gaussian? Um, there, I, I would say that, yeah. Um, it looks they're, they're like not away from a Gaussian. Yeah, that's right. So, so they're, they're, not, um, yeah, they're not Gaussian in the sense that we do have skewed data. Or rather, yeah, our, our, our fluctuations are skewed, but it's, it's, the skewness does not increase before the collapse. Do you see what I'm saying? All right, and then finally, um, we have also done experiments where we are uh, probing spatial patterns before collapse. And in particular, what we've been able to demonstrate is that uh, just like in the time domain, there's an increase in this recovery time before collapse. If you have spatially extended populations, then you have an increase in what you would call maybe the recovery length. If there's a perturbation in space, then it takes some length, some distance away from the perturbation to get recovery to equilibrium. And that we've been able to see that there's an increase in that recovery length before collapse. Uh, and that's a paper that is uh, in revision now. But uh, I didn't want. Done in a well mixed uh, test tube. Right. So, so the, in, that experiment is actually done in this in a meta population format. So the idea is, so you have well mixed populations that are connect, connected by some amount of migration. This is a what you have a row of well. Yeah, a row. Of, it's on a 96 well plate, and then the that's right. That's right. Yeah. Was there a question? Yeah. Oh, manually. At the end of each day, we transfer over. Some of the cells to the same location, then some to neighboring wells. So we just each. So we have a controlled amount of migration that we impose experimentally, right? So this is sort of the experimental realization of, a, of the standard uh, kind of stepping stone models or, or um, you know meta population models that theoretical ecologists often use. Okay, but in the limit of uh, each well are uh, on a different planets, it will give the same result. Or? If they're connected by migration, then yes. But it's hard to migrate uh, in that case. Um, yeah, no, but it, it, it's, it's, the, it's the migration of individuals that is relevant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't want to talk about this just because it's not the core. Um, it, it, it's, it's further away from multicellularity, I think. Yeah. But um, 
Uh, yeah, incidentally, I'm gonna, um, I'll be here through the end of the day today, so if anybody wants to talk about anything that I talk, talk about today, I'm happy to chat. So what does this, what does this have to do with multicellular? Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I kind of alluded to this. All right, so, um, uh, right, so I, I would say that uh, just like we, people, are, people argue that... Common good that stressing things. Right, so yeah, this is a group-level behavior. So just like you know, you can argue about whether you whether you want to think of, of microbes that are behaving as a group as being multicellular, and I don't, I wouldn't generally use that word, but um, it's a it's it's as a, these dynamics, the sudden collapse, re, it, they they result from the interactions between individuals in the population, and so that that's. Um, so it's maybe more the cooperation half of the title of this than the multicellular half. Okay. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, all right. So in in all the experiments that we've been talking about up to now, uh, the the yeast cells are collectively breaking down this sugar sucrose, allowing the population to grow. All right. So the the natural question here is, well, what happens if one of them stops contributing to that public good? So this is, you know, this is kind of the classic problem in evolutionary game theory, and and so so to explore this question, what we um, what what we what we did is just uh, use a, a defined genetic uh, knockout and then ask about the fate of that of that cell. All right. So what we have here are a population of cooperative cells that are green. Indeed, they are green because we put in a fluorescent protein. Um, what you have to ask is, well, what happens if one of those cells stops producing the enzyme responsible for breaking down that sugar? Right, it's colored in red because it actually expresses a red fluorescent protein. Right, now, if it's the case that that public good is all shared among the population, then that cheater should have some, some uh, benefit or some fitness advantage vis-a-vis -vis the cooperatives, and it should spread throughout the population. Right, and indeed, if, it's, if all that sugar is just shared equally, then at any fraction of cooperative versus cheater, it should be the case that it's always better to be a cheater, and this leads to extinction of cooperation. Does okay. it also lead to extinction of the cheaters? Yes, in principle, it would lead to the extinction of the cheaters as well. Right, so this is this kind of standard model of cooperation, the prisoner's dilemma, in which it's always better to be a cheater. Right? Now, a lot of work has gone into how you can uh, allow cooperation to survive in this case by looking at spatial structure or kin recognition or all sorts of things, uh, but I'll tell you about um, a different, simpler mechanism. But wait a minute, prisoner's dilemma is not always better to be a cheater. It's actually better not to be, it's just more rational. Okay, well, I, the, the statement is that in a simple one-off interaction, uh, regardless of what your opponent does, uh, it's you ha get a higher payout from um, if you defect. That's, that's the statement. And that's just... Not the, over time. You know, yeah, that's what I'm saying. In a simple one-off interaction... I, I guess that's what I'm saying. Is that in a, um, and indeed, in, 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 the, the, in, in this well-mixed kind, of, uh, kind of well-mixed situation, then uh, they're all uh, interacting with everyone else and uh, an absent, a concrete stabilizing force, indeed, this, this leads to extinction of cooperation. Uh, if you just do the replicator dynamics on a prisoner's He floor. says one off. You have to imagine an interaction which is divorced from space and time and is just an isolated interaction in an abstract sense away from any other environment, right? But in realistic biological situations, you presumably will have an evolutionarily stable strategy, quote unquote, which has a finite fraction of cheaters coexisting with cooperators. No. Uh, maybe. Uh, okay. I, mean, I guess. Okay. My my take on this is that um, if you want to characterize the interactions between these two strategies, uh, there's value in doing it in a well mixed 
situation so that you uh, have the simplest case and you can characterize it. And then the question is, well, what happens if you introduce various, um, you know, these other effects? Um, yeah. um, because, of course, yeast, they don't, you know, they didn't, you know, evolve in this particular environment that I'm, that I'm studying, and we're not quite sure what environment they evolved in, but uh, we're, we're sure it's not this one. Can you, can you even define a non-well-mixed situation for yeast in a flask? Um, well, if I turn off the shaker, then it's no longer well mixed. But, uh, but the rate at which they turn over is much less than the diffusion time in the flask. So they are going to be mixed at some scale. They're not going to see the environment of just cheaters with cheaters. And right. So, no, but I, I think that the, the same that you made is true so long as I have the mix. And that's why I'm, I'm serious about the shaking. I mean, that if, um, if, 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 if I have the shaker on, then the, the time scale of diffusion is going to be shorter than that. Yeah. But whereas if I turn off the shaker, then, then the, the local cells are going to be perhaps, they're going to change the time scale of the generation time scale. So then, yeah. um, OK. Uh, right, so, so what we do is we compete these guys, liquid uh, well-mixed batch culture. So it's really the same experiments I've been telling you about, essentially, um, except that now we have uh, this cheater strain, which simply lacks the gene required for this cooperative behavior. So it, it cannot, and therefore will not, ever cooperate. Always Does it get a selective advantage as a result of not having to make it? Yeah, so what we find is that the cost of, ex of expressing this uh, enzyme is around 2%. Um, all right, and indeed, they're different colors, so we can distinguish them by flow cytometry. Okay. Right, so the, the first question is, is it really the case that this is um, a behavior that, uh, where the, the state of cooperation is unstable, where cheaters can take advantage of the cooperators? To answer that, well, we can just start at 99% cooperative and see what happens over time. Indeed, what we find is that the cooperative fraction decreases over time. All right, so the cheaters are spreading or taking advantage of the population of cooperators. All right, and importantly, for broad range of conditions, we can observe that the growth rate of this co-culture is decreasing. All right, so the idea that evolution leads to uh, an inexorable kind of increase in the mean fitness of a population, um, that's true when there are no interactions between individuals in the population, but when you have these sorts of uh, game interactions, then you can get decreases in fitness of the population over time. I'm sorry, you said it and I just missed it. What's the initial fraction of non-cooperators in this experiment? Yeah, so it was, it was like 99%. Right, so the, um, the cooperators, they secrete the enzyme invertase, and that breaks down the sugar sucrose into monosaccharides, simple sugars that allow everyone to grow. Okay. Uh, whereas the cheater does not have that, the gene for that cooperative behavior. And the fraction of cooperators continues to inexorably decrease to zero, or does it flat? Well, right, so that's, that's the question. Okay. And, and indeed, a, a, the, the paper that um, got me interested in this as a model system, the Grive Travisano paper, uh, the title of the paper is Prisoner's Dilemma in, in Yeast Sucrose Metabolism Something. Um, but in order to make that statement that it's a prisoner's dilemma, you need to know that in a well-mixed environment, the cooperative fraction decreases at any starting fraction. And the most obvious starting fraction to start at is, is a low starting fraction, just to, so you can look at invasibility. Okay. So what we did is then we started an experiment where we started with 1% cooperator, 99% cheater. And in that case, what we found is that it's the cooperator that has the advantage. Okay. So the two strategies of cooperation and cheating are mutually invasible. So there is an evolutionarily stable strategy somewhere in between. Yes. And indeed, we can start at many different fractions and, and see where it goes and so forth. 
But the, the key thing here is that they're mutually invasible. Yeah? Do you understand why there is a plateau after between one and three days? Oh, no. I, so, the, so here, I think that this is really just that you know, we, we, we grow the cells up for some amount of time. They're not in some their equilibrium, happy, whatever state. You know? So I think the, the dynamics on the first day can, can vary. And so that's, yeah. This is serial dilution with some dilution factor. Yeah, so this is actually, this, is, this in, actually, um, we, we transfer over the same number of cells every day. So it's a constant N experiment, actually. Um, and, and, and actually, I'll, I'll show you later some data where we just do a dilution, constant dilution, and, and there we see all, actually uh, rich behavior. So, and how big is that N? How big is this N? Oh, this was 150,000 cells in a 5 mil volume. Right. So, so here what we get is we, there's coexistence between cooperation and cheating, even in these very simple, well-mixed environments. And this is telling us that we should not think about this interaction as a prisoner's dilemma, the standard model of cooperation, but perhaps we should think about it um, as a snowdrift game, or it's, more, it's closer to a snowdrift game, right, where there's coexistence. Right? Uh, so the basic idea of the snowdrift game is that uh, you're driving home after a day of work from Boston, and uh, you get stuck behind a big pile of snow or a snowdrift. Okay? You want to get home, so you'll shovel it away. Uh, so uh, you can drive through. But if there's another driver next to you, then you're playing some sort of game. Because what you would like is for him to get out and do the work of shoveling so that you can stay in your car. And so the key dynamic in the snowdrift game is that it's advantageous to cooperate if and only if your opponent cheats, and vice versa. Okay? So that leads to coexistence between the cooperators and the cheaters. All right, so the question here now, though, is, well, how is it that these cooperators are able to survive in the presence of the cheater strategies. Why is it that it's not a prisoner's dilemma? And, and the basic answer is something that, uh, that Andrew alluded to, which is that uh, these yeast cells, they secrete this enzyme invertase in red. But um, what we found is that maybe like, um, two-thirds of that invertase is actually gets stuck in the cell wall of that cooperator cell. What that means is that a significant fraction of the sucrose that gets broken down is broken down close to the cooperator cells. So the cooperators have some preferential access to the fruits of their labor, to that glucose that's made. Okay. Um, that preferential access, we found, is actually not very strong in that it seems that uh, approximately 1% of the sugar created by a cooperator cell can be captured before it diffuses away and is shared by other cells in the population. Okay. But that 1%, we think, is, is sort of essential for allowing cooperation to survive in this system. Uh, so that's by, that's by calculation or by experiment? Right, okay, so, so you can do a calculation, you get 1% diffusion. But then, uh, so experimentally, what we did is we asked, um, in dilute conditions, what's the rate of division of these cells, right? So, um, and that, that should tell you about the rate that they're able to import glucose, right? And then um, we also asked about the rate of um, import of glucose in different glucose concentrations. And then from that, we got the 1% as well. So I'd, I'd say that there are, you know, but I, I would say that this, it's not that it's 1% plus or minus 0.1%. It's really 1% within a, yeah. Could, could you vary this uh, epsilon by tuning the number of glucose and fructose importers? Yeah, so, yeah, so, right. So in, in principle, yeah, the problem is that glucose transport is super complicated because, uh, you know, there's, you know, half dozen hexose transporters and they turn on and off at different concentrations. You know, so it, it's a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a mess. I, I I tried to play with various things to um, get at this more, but um, with limited success. Is this a result of a calculation? Yeah, so, so you, you get 1% either if you just sit down and do a diffusion calculation or if you make measurements to try and estimate it. Yeah. So I'll, uh, yeah. 
How many invertase molecules are, are on a cell typically? Yeah, um, I, I think, all right, so it's, I did this estimate, uh, well, I think it's a large number. I mean, I, you know, 10 to the 5 or something, you know. Um, but that, yeah, well, I, I would say don't, don't quote me on that, but I'm, I'm being recorded, so I, 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 I
that would not that would not involve such a such a big uh, benefit. Yeah. Um, right. So are you talking about such a big benefit or such a big cost now? Or? Well, it's a benefit for the for the. Uh, for the oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Um, I think I, I agree. So, so invertase is a very highly expressed gene, which means uh, that it's going to be uh, it's going to have a, an associated relatively high cost. There may be other forms of cheating that have a lower cost, in which case it may be more difficult to fight against that. Right? Is that, is that yeah. your? I, I I agree with all of that. I guess what I would say is that it takes about ten to the twelfth glucose molecules to make a yeast cell. Right? That's about how many glucose molecules you. And so for any nutrient that you need in large quantities, you're going to need large numbers of molecules to produce truly prodigious numbers of individual small molecules that you need to grow. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it right. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. You had you said you had populations of around 150,000. That's right. And um, when you when you showed that the plant in which you put uh, in the population of cheaters you could a cooperator. Right. As a matter of fact, it was not only one. I mean, how many? Okay, so yeah, that, that was starting at one percent. One percent. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So, so we're not we're not at the yeah. low end regime there yet. I think early on you said that the cost of uh, producing invertase is two percent or something. Right. So you mean that's sort of the growth rate that would decline? That's right. When when they had all of the resources available, right. so, the cost of the that, right, so, so there what we do is we compete the cooperator and cheater uh, in glucose rather than in sucrose. So there's no benefit associated with making the enzyme, but there is a cost. Right, and so this 0.01, I think, is, should be roughly like a, a selective advantage, right? So uh, no, I, I, yeah, no, I think right. Um, yeah, so, so the, the important thing here that I haven't really talked about um, is that things are really highly nonlinear. So this 1% preferential access is super important when all you have is sucrose, you're in dilute conditions, there's, you know, right, so there's not very many cooperators, right? Um, whereas if there's a lot of cooperators and there's a lot of glucose, then the 1% preferential access doesn't actually do anything for you. Right, so there's a, that, that's what leads to this. Pre, that's what leads to the mutual invasion. Right, so at low cooperative fraction, the one percent gives the cooperators the advantage. But at high cooperative fraction, there's a lot of sugar out there. So then the one percent is not worth the cost. So that's what leads to coexistence. I think this number might have been in Andrew's talk, but maybe you know it too. What is the rate of uh, cooperator to cheater interconversion? Again, a mutation question. Oh, oh. Um, well, in this case, the, the cheater does not have the gene anywhere in sight, right? So the the rate that it, hard for it to go back. That's right. I mean, it would have to get the gene from somewhere else, but, right? But, but a cooperator could have, could have a defect. That, in that's right. That's right. So the mutation. The, the simplest way to do this would be to you know, for example, point mutation in the promoter would would definitely do this. And if you if there was just a single site that would be necessary, then you know, it might be ten to the minus I don't know eight per. Is that, probably it's probably if you Uh, yeah, it, it's a border that that number as well. Yeah, so 
various mutants can appear, certainly, uh, but they're not going to have that much time to spread. I think that, that's, that's a, a common theme. And, and I'd say for much of what we do, I'd say our experiments are actually in some ways closer to the theoretical ecology literature than the ev laboratory evolution literature in the sense that we, we look at defined strategies and then we try to understand uh, the dynamics of those strategies. So like three or four day experiments. Yeah, so you know, five days were, the, were these experiments, yeah. Do all wild-type strains express in particular? So, so, research, so, so people have gone out and looked at, at, at this. And what they found is that there's a large degree of polymorphisms in the uh, copy number of this gene. So some strains have one, some have two, some have three, four, and some don't have any intact copies of this gene. Right? And one interpretation of that would be that it's a result of these social interactions, although, of course, you can never quite prove that that's the case. Yeah. I just wanted to point out one thing, that in the in the realm of the prisoner's dilemma, you, you assume that um, all the cooperators have uh, a well-defined fitness difference compared to the, to the cheaters, right? And as long as you have this kind of mechanism from the, from the point of view of game theory, you could imagine that there might be a threshold for, um, uh, for a cooperators or for cheaters to have an advantage. And in that case, it is enough to have a small threshold to transform a prisoner's dilemma into a snowdrift type game. So in the existence of some, um, say, uh, cell type mechanism could guarantee this transformation that you will find. And a way to look at that would be to, to start with smaller and smaller number of cooperators because one of the byproducts of this transformation of the prisoner's dilemma is that you get a coexistence point, but you also get a coordination point down below, down at very small frequencies of cooperators. So this might be interesting to check yeah. when you start with a very small number of cooperators. Yeah, all right, so I... Um, yeah, no, I, there, there is a question of how you map the games onto the population dynamics. And I guess when I say the map, when I talk about the mapping the prisoner's dilemma, I'm talking about a pure public goods game uh, where, you, um, where you don't have any of this assortment. Because I, you might also be referring to some things where you, um, like the Simpsons paradox type ideas, where you, know, you, you have small population sizes, at, like bottlenecks. And then, but then you, can, then you can get stabilization due to uh, kin selection type things. So I, uh, no, 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 no. It's just that you need, you, you need to, to have a, a, a fixed number, a, a critical number of cooperators before um, before you, you, you get into, into an advantage. It's not necessarily uh, an assortment. It's just that if you have a public good the, in, in, in the group, you need to have a critical number before you, you get the benefit. And this actually, in sure. my view, is not so far, of course, viewed from a different, very different angle from the kind of mechanism that you are talking about. Yeah, no, I, I understand that you can have these models where you have the threshold before it, you know, and, but then you know, it's just, it's a more, but then there are more complicated models, I think is what, I guess what I would say. Um, and I would say that it's just the, the standard implementation of a pure public goods game, i.e. prisoner's dilemma, in a Moran process leads to extinction of cooperation. I guess that's, uh, that's my belief, although I'm happy to argue with people, but maybe we'll do it afterwards. Um, uh, yeah. And, and more generally, I guess I would say, uh, a simple qualitative measurement that we should be making is in well-mixed environments, you know, can cheating invade? And in well-mixed environments, can cooperation invade a population of cheaters, i.e., is there coexistence or not? You know, and then, you know, and then I'll, I'll let the theorists argue about exactly what 
they think that means. But I think it's a good thing to measure. All right, so there's, um, so we, I'd say we've recently become interested in a lot of these questions of the intersection between evolution and ecology. Um, and uh, you know, so, so one thing that we've done is look at how uh, competition between species will influence cooperation within a species. Okay. Uh, we've also been looking at how range expansions will affect the evolution of cooperation. Um, and I think that um, in, in the interest of time, I, I was planning on not talking about this, but I was going to maybe talk, um, talk about this one. But if you want to... Uh, ask me questions about range expansions later. That that would also be um, fun and everything. Okay. Um, all right. So the the basic question here is: um, in all the experiments that we've been doing, and basically all the experiments that anyone ever does, is is you know in, in in laboratory that we have uh we have you know yeast or we have bacteria and then we have cooperation and cheating. We ask, well, what happens there? And that's a, a fine experiment, I believe. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing them. But uh, but there's a natural question: well, what happens if there are you know if there are other species? You know, in in the natural world there. are hundreds of species in any given environment. And um, of course, I don't want to study 100 species. So as a physicist, what I do is I add one species that I happen to have sitting around the laboratory, in this case, E. coli. And then I just ask, well, what happens? Right, so for example, here, uh, we can look at the cooperative fraction within the yeast population. We have only yeast. So here, what you see is it slowly growing, but roughly stable, 10 15%. Now, and then what we do is we add, add E. coli, and then do exactly the same thing. Yeah. Why is this going uh, slower? Why is it? Okay, yeah. So, so, so the other thing I didn't say is that um, we can get different cooperator fractions at equilibrium by changing sugar concentrations and so forth. So we can actually tune the equilibrium fraction in a number in a number of different ways. Um, yeah. So the, the other case that I showed you, there was no glucose, so the cheaters or so the cooperators could really invade very strongly. Here we add 0.003 percent or 0.005 percent glucose. So there's some there's some glucose, and, and you know, so yeah, we can control things. Right, so here, you know, th this is relatively stable. But you add some E. coli bacteria, what you see is a dramatic increase in the cooperator fraction. Okay, so there's a big, big effect associated with having these bacteria present. Right, so the uh, the yeast population becomes somehow more cooperative. Right, now I, I want to stress that this is this is we should be able to understand what's going on here. Okay, in the sense that. Um, we should not have to invoke any sort of weird psychology. And I think that there, there, there's something about this experiment that leads us to do so. And that, uh, yeah. Was that a serial dilution or was it fixed? Can you? Uh, yeah, so, this, so this, in this case, it's, a, um, it's every two days diluting by a factor of 1,000. Yeah. And these bacteria are only too happy to eat the glucose? Yeah, right. So, th so this is, we'll, we'll, yeah, so we'll get to this. Okay. I just want to stress here, though, that um, we have to be careful about what the nature of the explanation is that we should be looking for. Because I, I think that there's something about this that it, it leads everyone, including myself, to somehow start saying things like, oh, well, the yeast, they care more about the other yeast. You know, no, I don't, I'm not really tempted to say that. But this, there's a temptation out there. And I just want to stress that it's not like what happened here in, in, in Star Trek VI, I guess, where you know, the humans were all fighting, and then the... And then, and then they, the, 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 the aliens came, and then the humans all of a sudden you know, started liking each other, and they formed the Federation, and then eventually end up with Jean-Luc Picard. Okay? It's not going to be that. All right, I just want to stress, there, there, there should be an explanation that... Bacteria glucose take as a lower K-in. All right, so let's look. Okay, so this is the natural, this is our, our initial hypothesis, that the bacteria are somehow acting as superior cheaters. Okay. And in that case, what they're doing is they're just they're mopping up all that glucose, and that would f that favors cooperation. Right. And indeed, 
So to, to explore this, what we did is we, we took a strain that has something like 10 or 20 mutations to, um, to dramatically reduce the ability of, uh, of the bacteria to uptake glucose. And what we found is that there was, an, there was a decrease in the effect, but not, it didn't go away for sure. Right, so it's not so this so I think that this thing where the bacteria are competing for the public good, the glucose, is relevant, but it's not the only explanation. So bacteria confronted these bacterial strains when confronted with sucrose alone. Right. So they, they cannot they cannot grow on sucrose. They, they can they have right. no invertase That's right. option. That's right. Alright, so what's happening to bacteria for the yeast fracture? Yeah, so I um I can I can show I can show you that. So we, we actually uh, one of the things that we did here is we showed that uh, by changing the buffering capacity of the media, we could actually um, change the balance to inqu- uh, between yeast and bacteria. In, uh, it is stable on this scale where bacteria they can go. Oh, yeah, there's coexistence between the species cells. Yeah. But that's because the bacteria can't make it on their own in the system, right? Um, yeah, so we actually also add some acetate that they can um, grow on. So. Uh, so they, they actually, so the bacteria can survive on their own, the yeast can survive on their own, and they coexist together. <coughs> if, if you play with the, the concentration of, uh, of the glucose, uh, if it, uh, it goes to the to the curve with the bacteria. Okay, so yeah, so um, I'll show you some. So we can make all these effects just go away if we just add a bunch of glucose. All right, so that's an important control. That it's, it really is because of the interaction via sucrose. And invertase that this this is this occurs. If you add 0.2% glucose, it all goes away. And I'll show you some data on, on that as well. Is that okay? Um, all right. So th- there's something else going on. And um, the other thing that we were thinking about is um, is the the question of just overall yeast density. Okay. And now I, t- I mentioned before uh, our simple model that gives this fold bifurcation structure. That's just the black line. Up to some critical density, the cooperators divide slowly. Above a critical density, they're able to grow rapidly, but then they have just logistic growth. And this is so this is linear, but on a linear scale. This is a log scale here. Okay. All right. So this is the simple model that I was referring to. Now, um, the the cheaters, the way we think about them is that they at low density, they have um, they have a di- they're at a disadvantage because they don't have as much access to glucose. But at high density, they have an advantage because they don't pay these costs associated with invertase production. All right. So this is. Uh, I think roughly as simple of a model as you can imagine that will give you the basic dynamics that, that are occurring. And actually, what we, what we find is that this model, although simple, gives lots of non-trivial predictions that we find are true experimentally. Uh, but in this simple framework, the question is, well, what happens if you have a bacterial competitor? Well, one thing is, even, even disregarding this question about glucose consumption, right? if, you, if all you do is you add a another species of competitor that limits the overall carrying capacity, well then what happens? Then you get saturation at a lower density, and then what that, what that does is that in this daily dilution, you, you see that you're going to spend more time in the environment where the cooperators have an advantage, and less time in the uh, growth phase where the cheaters have an advantage. Right, so just by limiting the carrying capacity, you should be able to favor cooperation. Okay. Right, and indeed, this is something that we can actually just see experimentally. So what we can do is we can just limit various resources of the yeast population, so no, no bacteria right now, just limit carrying capacity of yeast by limiting uracil, we can increase the cooperator fraction, or limiting phosphate, once again, increase the cooperator fraction. Right, so just by, just by limiting carrying capacity, we're, we can actually drive cooperation within the yeast population. Right, so we're kind of doing what the bacteria are doing manually. Right? And importantly, if it's really the yeast density that's important here, then we should be able to plot the cooperator fraction as a function of yeast density for these two different 
resource limitations and still get something similar. And indeed, uh, that's what we find. So if you plot the cooperative fraction at the end of the experiment as a function of that, the yeast density at the end of the experiment, what you see is that it doesn't matter whether you're limiting phosphate or uracil, the effect is broadly similar. Okay? So this is saying that um, we think that the, just limiting density is one way of, of, uh, of favoring cooperation. Just because high density is kind of the conditions where public, um, where public goods are plentiful and therefore where cheaters can really take advantage of cooperators. Okay. So I think with a, a two-resource system, I mean, without any of this other stuff going on, you, you can reach an equilibrium between the, the two species of competitors, right? So it's way back to... Oh, yeah, so there's different niches and so forth so that allow them to coexist as well, yeah. Can we get at something more biologically neutral than the bacteria, but trying to address this density idea by... So the bacteria are definitely going to be affecting, I get, I mean, the density, but also, I guess, the chemical makeup. Of the yeah. Thing. And then you have these chemical things taken with this or Like, just neutral, inert blobs of bacterial size. Oh. Um, okay, so yeah, right. So yeah, we haven't tried just adding uh, beads uh, or something equivalent. Yeah. But I guess we're, the other thing is that we, I mean we can also just increase the dilution factor, and what I'll show you is that that actually also increases the cooperator fraction. So I guess we're pretty confident that the density itself is 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 enough to explain it. Um, so yeah. there's something very subtle because they're saying that uh, the bacteria lowers basically the fat is lower the density of yeast. Yeah. But we are not saying whether it has an effect of the relative uh, fraction, right? So you say the bacteria lowers the total population, and then, and then there is the yeah. dynamics of the, the two. Right. Um, yes. So, um, so I mean, what we can say is that it, it, it increases um, you know, the cooperator fraction within the yeast population. But it's also worth saying that, um, that, this, that this is one important mechanism that the bacteria um, you know, influence the the, the yeast population. Although, what we find is that well, if you control for the yeast density, then actually the presence of the bacteria is actually, it drives cooperation stronger in the yeast population. Right? So if you, plot, if you plot that here, it actually is, is. So this is not the only effect either. So I'd say the glucose consumption, for example, is also important. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that uh, I could imagine that the bacteria would grow preferentially around the cooperators because they would find more sugar. Oh, yeah. Um, but this, this is also kind of a well-mixed population, so... Um, okay, so um, we, we've we've been here for almost an hour, hour and a half. I don't know. It, we could we could quit here. So the the last section that I would talk about is um, looking at the d interactions between the changes in the population size and the evolution. In particular, we can see spirals in this space of um, in, you know, of this coupling. I don't know, but um, I could also talk with interested people later. I don't know. I mean, what? Um, Let's go and keep going, and if there's okay. a natural pausing in this one. Okay. All right. That sounds fine. Um, right. Okay. So one thing that we, you know, so I told you we're generally interested in this interaction between evolution and ecology in various ways, right? And, um, and one thing that we're interested in is whether population dynamics and evolutionary dynamics might be coupled in some way. Right, so we normally think about these things, um, in many cases, just occurring over different time scales, so we don't have to think about them together. Right? So, for example, if you're thinking about, you know, Macro you know, evolution of humans, right, that uh, occurs over like a million year timescales. Whereas if you're thinking about population dynamics, that occurs over shorter timescales. So if you want to understand the dynamics of the human population on Easter Island, for example, then we don't normally think about whether the population is changing in an evolutionary way. We just look for maybe 
you know, you know, may, maybe they they let the topsoil erode or something. I don't know. Uh, you can you can read Jared Diamond's book, and he'll give you some opinion, right? But the idea is that in many cases we think that these things can be just thought of separately, right? Um, and in particular, this is maybe because in many uh, of the evolutionary things that we're thinking about, um, we're thinking about small selection coefficients. Whereas in, in microbes, in many cases, evolution is relatively rapid just because the mutations have a big fitness effect. Right? So what, I'm, what we're going to do is we're going to look at our experiments again. Now, the experiments that we talked about at the very beginning, what we had is we had pure cooperator populations. Uh, and then we just looked at the population dynamics with daily dilution. What you can see is that you know, there was this thing of stable, unstable, stable again. Right? Now, um, now what we're going to do is we're going to um, just do these daily dilutions. Okay? Um, and then we're going to look at the po- both population size and the evolution, and, and the cooperator fraction, you know, the SUC2 allele frequency in the population. Okay? And, and you know, I, I mentioned that in my original experiments, I kept things at constant n, so I only looked at evolutionary dynamics. Whereas here, we're allow- looking at both f and n. Okay? <coughs> What's interesting is that now if you do this, you look at population density, all sorts of funny things happen, right? You know, the populations go up and then down, down, then up, some, go, some collapse. And indeed, you might look at this data and just say, you know, throw up your hands and just give up, say evolution is, or sorry, you know, biology is too complicated and messy and so forth, right? And interestingly, even if you just look at the cooperator fractions, the evolutionary dynamics, what you see is that these also go up, down, down, up, all right, same, um, same, um, tubes correspond to the same colors here. Right? So you look at this and you don't see any obvious patterns. Right? Okay. What's interesting is that if you then, you know, maybe we're, we're looking at this in the wrong way. In particular, if we take those two curves, and now instead of looking at them as a function of time, instead we're going to look at the trajectories of these populations in the space space where we have population size on the x-axis and then evolutionary dynamics, the fraction on the y-axis, then what we see is we start to see remarkable patterns. And see, this red population, somehow it looks like it's going extinct. Whereas these other populations are somehow spiraling in this phase space of population dynamics versus evolutionary dynamics. So depending on how you plot the data, you can see some very different things. All right, now, I, told you about, I showed you that simple model that we had of the cooperators and cheaters. All right, so if you just look at that model and what it predicts in this space, um, what you see is the following. That what you expect is there to basically be two regions separated by this separatrix. The populations start on the left here. They go extinct. The populations to the right spiral to a state of coexistence. Now, all of this stuff about the fold bifurcation, all that, all that, that was looking at the dynamics along this one line. Right? So there's the stable state here, lower density. We have unstable, and again, stable is over here at zero. Okay? But what you see is that if you, look at, if you look at the entire phase space here, you get much richer dynamics, okay? or at least in theory. What you'd like to do is go and do, you know, track hundreds of populations and the trajectories over a week or two. Um, and the fabulous thing is that, once again, with microbes, we can do this. Right, so Alvaro is a fabulous postdoc, um, and I encourage you guys all to hire him. If he, okay. uh, he, went, he did this experiment, and what, um, what, what he got is the following. Right, so the low-end data is somewhat more noisy, as you might expect, but these are experimental trajectories where we're looking, where we can see how the evolution and you know, some ecological variable, the population size, they are somehow coupled. They're spiraling in this phase space. Okay. Sorry, Jeff, can you give me a little bit more intuition about the red? Uh, sorry, can you just... Uh, um, so, uh, about this state? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so, well, okay, so, you know, it's just, so we can think about, well, what, what is happening over the course of one of these spirals, right? Well, 
If we have low n, low f, well, in that case, there isn't that much public good available, so the cooperators have an advantage. Okay, so the f is increasing. But as f increases, now there's more and more sugar, so the population size starts increasing. Okay, but as that happens now, you're in this kind of situation where there's a lot of public good available. Now the cheaters have an advantage, so they you start evolving in this direction, right? So you kind of spiral to that state there. And does that? Um, and do you understand the zigzag trajectories on the left side? Oh no! So this uh, there's just a lot of noise in measuring density at that low, uh, the, these low densities. Yeah. So there, I mean that's not that's not real. Sorry, could, could you uh, say a little bit more about the model? Can you just plug something? Yes, so the, the, the model there is, is exactly that mo the model that I showed um, before when thinking about the bacterial yeast. So that it's just, there's two, two phases. At below some critical density, the cooperators grow faster. Above that density, the cheaters grow faster. But then they both saturate together logistically. So it's, it's, it's a simple model, but it, it gives... Something that's pretty reminiscent of the experiments, I would say. Um, so, okay, the model for the population density then is just logistic growth. That's right. That's right. Um, and if any of you guys are the third reviewer that we're waiting for to, you know, it's been three months. I understand that we're all busy, but um, okay. Uh, side note. All right. Um, okay. So, so all right. So that's interesting. All right. Now, um, I just want to mention. Right. So, one thing that's interesting here, though, is that. The presence of the cheaters don't significantly reduce the population size. Right? So you can see the population size is kind of similar between the blue and the red. Right? Now you might ask, well, do the presence of those cheaters have any effect on the, um, the population? Do, do, they, do they reduce the sort of the, somehow the effectiveness of that population in any way? Well, if you look at the model, what you see is there's something, and there's an interesting prediction. Okay? In a benign environment, you get the separatrix that looks like this with coexistence here. Whereas in a challenging environment, harsh environment, it looks more like this. Okay? Now, what this suggests is that if we start here and we slowly deteriorate the environment, the population should be able to track that environmental change. It should be able to evolve to higher cooperator fraction and move here fine. Okay? However, what you can see is that this coexistence state is outside of the region of survival in that harsh environment. So a rapid environmental change should lead to extinction of that population. So it's an interesting case in which there should be some coupling between the timescales of evolutionary change in the population and timescales of environmental change. Okay. So this is something that we can test experimentally. Uh, what Alvaro did is start in a benign environment, went to a harsh environment just via one intermediate to give it, you know, so kind of slow change. What he saw is that um, all of these mixed populations were able to survive, as were the pure cooperator populations, as you would expect. Okay. Slow deterioration, all the populations are able to survive. Whereas a rapid deterioration, what you see is that these mixed populations, only one of the six or eight was able to survive. Whereas all of those pure cooperator populations were able to survive. Okay. So th this is, I think, an interesting case where the presence of these social parasites, they don't seem to decrease the population <laughs> fitness at all. Density only, only lower by 10, 20%. However, it decreases the resilience of those populations to, um, to perturbations in the environment. And just as um, a very, uh, sh uh, just to tie things together with the beginning of the talk, right? these early warning indicators we studied were just with the pure cooperative population. So you might ask, well, how is it that these indicators will show up in these more complicated populations, right? where we have the cooperators and the cheaters? 
Right, so this is work that is jointly done between Alvaro and uh, a remarkable undergraduate in the lab. Okay, so as we deteriorate the environment, we see is the total population size is going down, as you would expect. Okay. What's interesting is that if you look at the population size of the cheater and the cooperator subpopulations, you see something kind of funny, which is that the cooperator population size is actually increasing as the environment deteriorates. Okay. I think that this is important because our first order metric for determining the health of a population is the population size. And that makes sense, right? I mean, if there's a lot of something, it's probably doing okay. Right? Whereas the first case that we go and we look at where we have these subpopulations, what we see is that as the environment deteriorates, one of those subpopulations actually increases in size before collapsing. Okay. Right. Now you can ask, well, what about some of these indicators? For example, the coefficient of variation. What's important here is that it doesn't matter whether you're measuring the coefficient of variation of the total population size, the cooperator population size, or the cheater population size. In all three cases, the coefficient of variation works as an early warning indicator that the system's about to collapse. Okay. So I think that this is quite encouraging, actually, because even in these funny cases where the population size is going up when you think it should be going down, still the CV is increasing dramatically. Um, and then, uh, finally, I'll just end with this question of, you know, how is it that you expect critical slowing down to show up? It's not that the eigenvalue goes to zero in this case. It should be that the real part of the eigenvalue goes to zero because these are spirals, right? And instantly, this is a zoom in of Alvaro's data, and it's data. And it's, it's kind of amazing, I think, actually. Uh, right, so those are, I think those are quite some beautiful spirals. All right. Now, I'll just show you, um, now I'm going to show you some, um, okay, and I'll say that indeed, um, an analysis of the, these data indicate that the uh, real part of the eigenvalue does. Um, does well. This is a discrete system, so the real part of the eigenvalue actually goes to one, or, or, you know, or the, sorry, the magnitude of the eigenvalue goes to one. But um, but I'll just show you in that the model, you know, how the, how it's supposed to collapse. Okay, so this is now simulations. So just want to make that transition, All right? So at a low dilution factor, it spirals very rapidly. But as the environment deteriorates, what you see is that the, those spirals somehow become more spirally. It takes longer for them to reach equilibrium. Okay, spirals kind of slow down, and indeed at some critical dilution rate, you get these neutral spirals before they start spiraling outward. So the way that um, we, th we think that this system is collapsing is by a loss of stability of um, the spiral. Okay. And I'm just going to uh, end there. Uh, to summarize, so what we've done is we've used the cooperative growth of yeast and the sugar sucrose to study the phenomenon of catastrophic collapse. Right? So we can experimentally map out this bifurcation diagram, and then we can test a bunch of these ideas in theoretical ecology. So we can see that, for example, both the size and the time scale the population fluctuations increase for the collapse. Right. We also can see that cheater strategies can invade, but we get coexistence between the cooperators and cheaters and survival of the population. Right. We've been interested in a number of different things that uh, influence, for example, this cooperative fraction. We see that uh, competition with bacteria or other, you know, we think other species in general will likely increase this cooperative fraction. We also see that range expansions, I didn't talk about it, but range expansions also favor cooperation in some interesting ways. Uh, and then finally, I, I, I've really gotten excited about this idea that we can get a lot of insight by looking at these kind of eco-evolutionary trajectories on this, on this phase plane, uh, where we can really map the dynamics of individual populations uh, as, uh, as the evolution and the population size are kind of coupled in, in kind of fun ways. Right? Um, so if you guys have any other questions, I'm happy to take them. But of course, uh, I should thank the group and uh, funding agencies for supporting the work. pessimistic message is that uh, there'll be no cooperation in the Congress while we're going reasonably good. 
and uh, the cochlear yes. will devolve, you know, appear just before it collapses. Yes, it, it, it very, very well could be. I, they're a pure cheater population. We have to do it from below. Actually. Right, right. I, I, I've been, um, I've been, you know, I told you I can tune the cooperator and the cheater fraction. So I, I wanted to tune it to some conditions where there were 47% cheaters, but um, I haven't yet gotten around to it. Um, yeah, I kind of, uh, I, I, I was here like, uh, how you explain this? I wonder, the only place about here by stability. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious whether it's induced by your, your artificial procedure of dilution or there's some kind of more molecular basis. Oh, For example, um, have you done the like, gene expansion expression already to see what's uh, pending in the two? Okay, so um, right, so the question is whether the bi-stability is due, for example, to the daily dilution. Um, and I, I think that, um, so we, we've done a number of experiments in continuous culture, and I would say that I'm, um, we didn't do this particular experiment in continuous culture, but I would say I'm willing to bet large sums of money that it's going to be um, bi-stable in a continuous culture as well. So I, I, I'm not so... Oh, right, yes. Oh, okay, so yeah, I... Um, uh, so we have not we have not looked into gene expression profiles in the populations that survive and not uh, basically I'd say we're I'd say we're pretty confident that we understand what's going on so that's basically why although you sound like a serious you're confident about this regulation yeah you know it's just I mean we've done lots of experiments with this system so I, you know but of course we can be wrong um, but um, yeah. Um, I guess I thought the whole point of uh, right, your modeling, you started off with fish, and presumably your overfishing is uh, the rate of dilution, if you like, right? So, and uh, but I would imagine it's rather important for you, right? Your statements uh, uh, are really with regard to what happens as a function of parameters, right? And yeah. you can with confidence say that if you uh, vary some parameter, there'll be some bifurcation somewhere. When somebody asks you about uh, whether there's bistability at zero dilution, that uh, you know, really depends on conditions, details. You're okay. now taking a cut through complicated things. Okay, no, okay, so my, my, state, my statement is that in uh, um, a turbidostat, for example, uh, that there, um, you know, there will be a, you know, a dilution rate in the turbidostat that we will get bi-stability in the system. Uh, I, that's not the same thing as saying that we think we're going to be able to measure an increase in the size of the fluctuations or whatever, but I, just, but I would say I'm, I'm confident in the, uh, the bi-stability of the, of the population survival versus not. <coughs> All right, well, uh, let's, let's quit, but I'm available, as I said, for the rest of the day, if anybody wants to talk about anything, I would love to do so. All right, thanks. Uh, let me point out we have a